You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Uh, If history proves anything to us, it proves this. It proves that the gospel can easily be distorted, manipulated, corrupted, and ultimately lost. And when this happens, history shows us that the gospel is not easily recovered. I'll give you an illustration of this. In the Middle Ages, the, before the Reformation, uh, the, the gospel began to get confused in the minds of people. It began to be misunderstood. It began to be manipulated for selfish and corrupt ends. So that by the time just before the Reformation, the gospel was almost completely lost. The gospel, according to the church at the time, was was this. If you would pay an indulgence to a priest by the name of Tetzel, who was in Germany at the time, selling these indulgences, you could pay to have your loved one freed from purgatory and go immediately into the presence of God. That was the gospel that the church was preaching at that time. The purpose of it was to pay for St. Peter's Basilica, to to build what we see in, in Rome today. And then came the Reformation. People like Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli John Knox and, and many, many others, some of whom who paid with their lives for the gospel. God revealed it to them. God showed them the gospel again in the pages of scripture and the Reformation happened and God changed the world through that. The gospel was there all along, but it was hidden in plain sight, buried under a mountain of error and deception. And so for us in the 21st century, it is critically important that we understand the gospel, that is, understand that the gospel is easily lost. Another illustration, another perhaps more shocking illustration is this, from the book of Galatians, you don't need to turn there, but in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 6, Paul says this, I am surprised that you are so quickly deserting Christ and turning to a different gospel. Now think about this. This is, this is one of the earliest epistles that the apostle Paul wrote. Before the council of Jerusalem in the, in the very early ages, stages of the ancient church. And the people of Galatia were abandoning Christ and abandoning the gospel and turning to what they thought was another gospel. And he says it's not, it's not another gospel at all. The scary part, the frightening part, is that if you continue reading in the book of Galatians, Paul tells us this experience about how both Peter and then Barnabas were also confused about the gospel and participated in the growing error that was prevalent in those days. Paul had preached a gospel that, of grace, that, that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He had preached that boldly. And now people were coming along and saying that, yes, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but also you need to add good works. In this case, it was circumcision. So grace plus works was the message that was being preached in Galatia. And Paul, you can almost feel him pulling his hair out at at this. He had preached the gospel, and so quickly they were deserting Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so this is why at the end of his life, writing from a Roman prison, probably in around 66, 67 AD, he's writing just before he dies to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says this to Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. In other words, guard the gospel, fight for it, hold tightly to it, defend it, protect it, because it is easily corrupted, it is easily distorted, it is easily manipulated, and it's easily lost. So our responsibility is to guard the gospel. Our responsibility is to defend the gospel, to protect it. But before we can do that, we have to understand what the gospel is. So Paul takes pains at the beginning of the book of Ephesians to explain the gospel to us. He goes into great detail about what God has done. And as I said last week, if you read this passage of scripture, it's all about God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Holy Spirit. It's what God has done for us in Christ. All of it. So he begins this passage speaking about what God has done before time. He tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to become adopted sons and daughters of the living God. All happened outside of time, before time began, before the foundation of the world. And then if you look in verse 6, he says this. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God did this to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has shown to us, in the beloved. And let me say two things. First of all, just as by way of reminder, everything that God has done in our salvation from beginning to end is for his glory. It is all about his glory. It wasn't to get me to heaven. It wasn't so that I could live my best life now. It wasn't so that he could pour blessings into me. The reason that he saved me is that I might be a trophy of his grace, that I might be a demonstration of his magnificent love, his unconditional, perfect, amazing grace. That's why he saved us. That's what salvation is all about. And secondly, and this is important, there's a little phrase here where he speaks about in the beloved, which becomes a hinge in this passage of scripture to help us move from thinking of what happened outside of time to what Jesus does in time in order to save us. That little phrase, in the beloved, really is a hinge. It pivots us from talking about what God has done before time to what Jesus does in time. And so Paul helps us understand the ministry now of Christ, what Jesus has done. The mechanics, the process that God used to accomplish the decrees that he made outside of time, before time. And so if we're going to hold tightly to the gospel, if we're going to defend it, if we're going to protect it, if we're going to be those, a, a church that is able to say, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to understand this passage. So before we do, let's pray and ask God to open our hearts and minds to really understand it. Father, I thank you so much for that song that we just sang, that the gospel changes everything. And it does. Your coming into this world changed everything. And we're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us. We're so grateful that you have opened our eyes, opened our minds, opened our hearts to respond to the gospel. 
that we see things clearly now, that we understand why you created us. We understand why we are here. We understand where we are going. We understand a philosophy and understanding of history that makes sense. And Lord, we're just so grateful that not only do we understand the gospel, not only does it save us, but as that little song says, it is transforming and changing and shaping our lives and making us more and more like Christ. We're grateful for that. And so I pray now that as we turn our attention to this passage of the scripture, that we would revel in the grace of God in Christ, that we would revel and rejoice in the gospel, but also that in understanding it, we would be transformed, that our lives would be more fully conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus. And we pray these things for your honor and your glory. Amen. So, if we're going to understand and defend the gospel, what's important? The first thing is the incarnation and the virgin birth. As I said, Paul uses the word the beloved to describe Jesus. Now, he could have said Jesus. He could have said Messiah. He could have even said the Son of God. But he chose to use the words the beloved. And I think the purpose in him using those, that little phrase is to help us think about the incarnation. I think probably he wants us to understand or to think back to that moment when Jesus was baptized and God referred to him as the beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The beloved son. If you turn over to the book of Philippians, which is sort of really quick, like next door, Philippians chapter two is a passage of scripture that speaks about the incarnation and the virgin birth. It speaks about Christ the beloved one and what he did for us. So I'd like you to just read this little passage of scripture with me from verse five and following. He says this, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One translation says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. He was fully God, and yet he became a man. Now, I know that that's Christian theology, and we understand that. But Paul is drawing our attention to it, and it's critical that we understand it. The Old Testament predicted that God would send a Messiah. And the way that was going to happen was that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us, because he would save his people from their sins. The beginning of the Gospel of John, we read these words, that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld or we saw his glory, glory as of the Father full of grace and truth. So the first thing that we have to understand, if we're going to defend and guard the gospel, is the incarnation and the virgin birth of Jesus. So why did Jesus have to become like us? Why did he have to become a man? And the answer to that is real simple, because it was a man, Adam, who got us into the predicament that we found ourselves in before Christ. It was Adam's choice to rebel against God that brought sin into our world. It was Adam's choice to 
do what he did that caused the alienation that exists between God and humans. The problem was that there was no man capable of resolving this situation. Because it was a man who got us into this plight, it was going to require a man to get us out of this situation, and there was no man. Because every single one of us is born tainted with Adam's sin. We have a fallen, sinful nature. God needed a perfect man, a perfect lamb. Adam, and Adam's sin, as I said, ensured that none of us could ever fulfill that role. And so God sent a second Adam. God sent another perfect man. Not just an innocent man, but a perfect man, the God-man. The, the alienation that existed because of Adam's sin could only be reversed by the work of a perfect man, the obedience of a, of a perfect man, the God-man. So I want you to think of it this way. This is why it's so critical to the gospel that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he did not have a nature like ours, that he was fully human but fully divine, the Son of God. Think of it this way. Adam in the garden rebelled against God. He sinned. And the consequence of his sin was alienation from God and banishment from God's presence into the wilderness, right? Think about the second Adam. The second perfect son of God. The second Adam, the perfect son of God. After his baptism, after that moment in Matthew chapter 3, where the heavens open and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What do we read in chapter 4? And the Spirit led him out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And Satan tempted him and Jesus resisted. And throughout his ministry, as he headed toward the cross, Satan kept tempting him until he came to this pivotal moment in a garden. And in the garden... The second Adam made a choice that was 180 degrees opposite to the choice of the first Adam. Where the first Adam had rebelled against God, turned his back on God, the second Adam, the perfect man, perfect God-man, chose to submit. And in that moment, he put you and me on his shoulders and he took us to the cross and he paid the price of our sins. You see, the first Adam represented us. Matthew 5.12, or I'm sorry, uh, Romans 5.12 teaches us that. We sinned in Adam, and we were banished from the presence of God eternally out into the wilderness. How was that going to be resolved? The only way it could be resolved would be through another man, a perfect man coming, and beginning in the wilderness, journeying to that critical point of obedience. And he wrapped his arms of love around us in that moment and took us with him to the cross. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But it was Christ's obedience, his submission, his willingness to obey that re reconciled us to God. Now, theologians call this the hypostatic union. You don't have to remember that word. 
But it's critical to the gospel. It's absolutely critical to the gospel. People will say, oh, Jesus was, I I love Jesus. He was a good teacher. He said so many noble and and wonderful things that just warm my heart. And I want to be like that. I want to follow the golden rule because Jesus taught the golden rule. Jesus was so altruistic. He healed the sick and and he fed people. And I I think that's what we should be. That's, That's what the gospel's all about, isn't it? Caring for other people. He was a wise teacher. He said so many good things that we, if we only appropriate them and, and build them into our lives, we're going to live happy lives. And that's what we should do because that's what Christianity is all about, isn't it? Those are all wonderful things. But that's not the issue. That's not who Jesus was. That's not the, the most glorious thing about Christ. The most glorious thing about Jesus is not that he was a great teacher or that he was altruistic and he, and he helped people. The most glorious thing about Christ is that he was the only begotten son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was God in the flesh. And we must never, ever lose that truth. The virgin birth of Jesus and the incarnation of Christ is the linchpin upon which the gospel hinges. If we lose it, we lose the gospel. So if we're gonna defend that, if we're going to defend the gospel, the first thing that we have to understand is that we must defend the virgin birth and the incarnation of Jesus. That's why Christmas is so important. That's why it's so critical that we celebrate Christmas. The most significant event in all of human history happened when God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. There has never been anything like it in all of history, nor will there ever be anything like it. I long for the second coming of Jesus when the clouds open up and Jesus comes back. It's going to be an amazing day. It'll be the second most significant day in all of human history because nothing can compete with the incarnation. God became flesh. Think about it. God in heaven who was equal with God the very essence of God himself, part of the Trinity, became one of us in order to restore us, to bring us from the wilderness where we were lost and on our way to hell, to bring us home because he made that choice in a garden. He loved us. He loved us. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest story ever told. Never, never forget it. Hold tightly to it because the gospel depends on it. But secondly, we have redemption through his blood. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. This word redemption, deliverance, Paul, the Bible actually uses it in three different ways. It's used of purchasing a prisoner of war or a slave It's used to describe taking somebody who's on death row and liberating them, commuting their sentence. It's also used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's ongoing rescue of his faithless people, Israel. And when the word is used, generally the emphasis is on the deliverance of people who are absolutely helpless to deliver themselves. A prisoner of war or a slave 
has no rights and is completely helpless to deliver himself. Someone on death row waiting for the executioner is helpless to deliver himself. That emphasis is repeated over and over and over again when we see this word redemption or deliverance used in the scriptures. And how is it accomplished? How generally does God do this? Well, a price has to be paid. A ransom has to be given. And what was that price? It is always blood. It is always blood. In the Old Testament, a lamb was sacrificed in order to temporarily satisfy or assuage or hold back the wrath of God. Remember the story of the Exodus. A lamb was slain. Blood was smeared on the doorposts and on the lintel so that the angel of death might pass by. But God had promised, and I want to read this passage to you. It might take a second, but I think it's important. God had promised that he would send a lamb. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, because this is a critical passage of Scripture if we are to understand what it means that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Begin at verse 7. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 53 and follow along. Beginning at verse 7. He was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now there's one passage of the Old, from the Old Testament who, that speaks about the fact that God had anticipated a day when the blood of bulls and goats and the constant sacrifice in the temple would be no more. And God would provide a perfect, spotless, sinless, righteous, holy lamb upon which to vent his wrath for our sin. Jesus came as the perfect sin bearer. That's why John cried out in John 1.29, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus came as a lamb. Peter describes it for us beautifully in, in, in um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. I'd encourage you again to take your Bibles. Listen to what Peter says. Knowing that you were ransomed, knowing that you were redeemed, knowing that you were delivered, knowing that you were purchased from the futile ways inherited from your father, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without spot or blemish. You see, what was it? What did it take? What was the price that had to be paid? 
It was the blood of Jesus. He became and was our perfect sin bearer. He took God's wrath for our sin so that we might receive his righteousness. See, on the cross, God took a perfect lamb, a sinless lamb, a lamb that could only have come from outside of time, and a lamb that could only have come from heaven because any other lamb would have been imperfect and sinless and tainted and blemished. And he put that lamb on the cross for you and for me. And in a moment of time, in six hours, the righteous, holy God of Israel poured his wrath upon Jesus and he suffered and bled and died and took God's anger, God's just anger for my sin and your sin upon himself. Our sin was imputed to Christ. And here's the key. This is why, this is why the virgin birth and the incarnation is so critical. The perfect lamb of God in that same instant, instance, he gave his righteousness to us. That's the transaction of the cross. My sin on his shoulders so that he could cover me over in his perfect righteousness. You see, Jesus didn't just die for me on the cross. For 33 years, he lived for me. He lived a perfect, sinless life. So that in that moment in time, God could take my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions, everything that I have ever done to violate his holy law and place it upon Jesus and that he would give me of his perfect holiness. I would be seen as having lived a holy and righteous and perfect and noble life. Paul talks about this in one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had never sinned to be sin on my behalf in order that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Think about that. God made Jesus, who had never sinned, to be sin, to become sin, to be cursed by sin so that I could become the righteousness of God through him. R.C. Sproul, I used this quote a couple of weeks ago and I was preaching somewhere else. This is the book called The Holiness of God by, by R.C. Sproul and this is what he says. This is how he describes it. Listen. The cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just and the most gracious act in history. God would have been more than unjust. He would have been diabolical to punish Jesus if Jesus had not first willingly taken upon himself the sin of the world. Now listen to this sentence. Once Christ had done that, once he volunteered to be the Lamb of God laden with our sin, then he became the most grotesque and vile thing on this planet. With the concentrated load of sin he carried, he became utterly repugnant to the Father. God poured out his wrath on this obscene thing. God made Christ accursed for the sin he bore. Herein was God's holy justice perfectly manifested, yet it was done 
for us. When Paul talks about redemption in his blood or through his blood, that's what he's talking about. Theologians have big words for this again. We call it penal substitution. You may call it propitiation, the word that's used in the New Testament a number of times. But today there are some who seek to dismiss this doctrine. There are some who want to just just get rid of this bloody, violent event. Some people will say, well, this is just cosmic child abuse. Some will say, how can God who's so holy and so righteous and so noble and so good and so loving, how can that God and wrath be reconciled? Others will say, well, this view is just one of many views about what happened at the cross, one of many views about the atonement. And my response to that would simply be this, that's a lie. The atonement, what happened on the cross, what Jesus did for us, wasn't about him displaying that he was now victorious. It wasn't him just saying, okay, we're establishing a new covenant now. It wasn't just saying, God is loving and I'm forgiving. Although all of those things are said in what Jesus did. But at the heart of it, at the core of it, there is a bloody and horrible transaction that had to happen in order for you and for me to be saved. And that was that God poured out his wrath on his son, his just and righteous wrath on his son, and turned his back on his son so that you and I could be embraced and loved by the Father. That is the bullseye. That is the heart of the gospel. And if we ever lose that, we lose the gospel. The virgin birth and the incarnation are critical to the cross. They go hand in hand. If we lose one, we've lost the gospel. If we lose the second, we've lost the gospel. The atonement is a horrible transaction. It was a bloody, violent moment when the just and holy wrath of God was poured out on his son. And it had to be. In Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about this at length, and he explains to us that in the death of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is revealed because in order to save us, in order to justify us, he first had to be just. He first had to be righteous. He had to be, the just, he had to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Now, what does he mean when he talks about God being just, God being righteous? Well, let me give you an illustration. Say there is a horrific murder in your town, like happened in Woodstock a couple, maybe 10 years ago, when that little Tory Stafford was so brutally raped and murdered. And you're fascinated by what's happening, so you go to the court, and there's the accused, And there's absolutely no question about his doubt. The DNA has proven it 100%. He is the man. He is the man who has done this horrific crime. And you're standing there. You're watching this. And the judge stands up. It's a very solemn moment. He's wearing his robes. And he says, Today I'm feeling particularly magnanimous. 
and feeling very, very kind and loving and gracious. And so I have made a decision. I am simply going to pardon this man. And he pronounces the verdict. The man stands up and walks out of court. That decision by that judge would be almost as horrific a crime as the crime itself. And you know that because your soul is repulsed and repelled by that thought. If we fallen creatures have such a well-developed sense of justice, how much more is God's? And how much more righteous is it that he punishes sin? Righteousness demands that sin be punished. So that's why, as I said, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, God did what he did in order to display his righteousness and be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what is the result of this? As I said, what is the consequence? We're forgiven. We're forgiven of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Like that is just amazing. Amazing grace. We're forgiven. God holds nothing against us. There is nothing in his heart for you and for me except love if we are in Christ, if the gospel has gripped us and changed us. He loves us. I love what Brett prayed earlier on because our, our sins, past, present, and future are paid for. They're covered over by the blood of Jesus and we are covered over with his righteousness. When God sees you today, he sees you as the perfect son of God. He sees you like Jesus because of the cross. We must never, never allow the blood and the horror and the cost and the violence of the crucifixion of the atonement to get lost. Because when we do, we lose the gospel. Thirdly, the, ex- the absolute exclusivity of Jesus. Look at verse, look at verse uh, 8 with me. Which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, when you sort of read that at first, you kind of scratch your head. I do. And I think, what, what is Paul talking about here? What is this mystery that he is speaking about? The good news is that we don't have to go far in the book of Ephesians to figure out what this mystery that God is speaking to us about, what it is. So if you go over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, you can, you can read. And I'll read for you, right? maybe say from, um, oh, let me read from verse, verse 1. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he's saying, this mystery that I'm going to reveal to you right now, 
This is something that wasn't revealed earlier on in the Old Testament. This is something that was kept secret by God, but it has been revealed now to us apostles. And this is the mystery. And he says, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what is the mystery that he's talking about in chapter 1? The mystery that had been kept hidden for many, many, many generations before, and the mystery which is real to Paul and to Peter and to others. The mystery is simply this, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the mystery is the plan of God to join Jew and Gentile together in one new covenant people of God, to unite them into what has become a new iteration of Israel itself that we call the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, if you are a Messianic Jew living in Jerusalem, worshiping Yeshua, or you're a Gentile living in St. Catharines, worshiping Jesus, although your worship is radically different, We are all part of the same body. That was the mystery that had been kept hidden for centuries that nobody saw coming, that God was going to do through Christ this amazing thing. He was going to take Gentiles and incorporate them into the covenant people of God. That's why Peter calls us, he uses the terms that would normally be given to the nation of Israel or the people of Israel, he calls us by that name. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, Once you were alienated from God, once you were lost, you Gentiles, but now you are the people of God. So think about what God has accomplished. Think about how he fulfilled this mystery in Christ. Well, in Christ, we have blood that is better than the blood of bulls and goats. What the blood of bulls and goats simply could not accomplish Jesus' blood accomplishes. We have a far better high priest. The old high priests lived and went into the temple and had to sacrifice for their own sins, as Hebrews says, and then they died. But we have a high priest now in this new iteration of Israel who is perfect, who died once perfectly and went into a perfect holy place in heaven to justify us. Think about the temple. The temple that we have is no longer in Jerusalem. It's no longer a stationary edifice, but it is us together, the bride of Christ, the temple of the living God. So that when we gather to worship, the presence of Christ is amongst us. The spirit of God shows up. The Shekinah glory is in our worship. We have a better priesthood. It's us. We have a better circumcision. It's not a physical thing anymore. It is a circumcision of the heart that not only marks us out as the people of God, but transforms us into the likeness of Christ. 
No one saw this coming. No one saw this coming. So the, an illustration is Matthew 24. The, 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 Jesus is walking out of the temple near the end of, his, end of his ministry and the disciples stop and they look around and, and, and they point out all the magnificence of the temple and they, they, they just, they, they're in awe of this magnificent edifice. Later on, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and they start asking Jesus some questions. And in that conversation, Jesus tells them, it's most clearly represented in the book of Luke, Luke 21. Jesus tells them without any doubt, this temple, this edifice, this building, this symbol of God's old covenant is going to be destroyed. The Romans are going to build sieges. They're going to tear it down stone by stone. There'll be nothing left. And why did Jesus predict that? Because he knew that what he was going to do was going to be so much better than what had been there before. So, we have a, Hebrews chapter 10, we have a new and living way to the Father. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. I won't take time to read it because we're going to run out of time here, I'm afraid. But we have a new and living way to the Father. It's no longer the blood of bulls and goats, but it is the person and the work of Jesus. So, to defend the gospel, what do we need to do? Two things. First, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We reject any idea that there are other paths that bring a man or a woman into reconciliation with God. There, are, there, are, there is no other way to the Father but through him. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name. There is no other path. It is simply not true that all roads lead to the top of the mountain. There is one way, and it's through Christ. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we, we, we defend the truth that Jesus is the only way. But also we defend the truth and hold tightly to the truth that Jesus only is the way. Jesus is the only way to the Father, but Jesus only is the way. And what I mean by that is that we have to, if we're going to defend and hold tightly to the gospel, embrace this thing that I said, this idea that I talked about last week, that the only contribution that I make to my salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. It is all of Christ. The gospel is grounded in that concept that from beginning to end, from outside of time to outside of time, which this passage takes us on that journey, it is all of God, and it is all for his glory. So in chapter 2, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, Paul is going to emphasize this as important. He's going to say, by grace you have been saved. By, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that we have nothing to boast in. Nothing. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all the glory alone goes to him. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. What do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is, well, nothing. What do you have that you didn't receive? then why do you boast as if you, re, you, you contributed somehow? 
You see, it's only Jesus. He is the Savior. It's only Christ. What we bring is our sin. What we bring is our rebellion. What we bring is our spiritual death. What we bring, it's nothing. What he brings is everything. And the consequence of that is worship. The consequence of that is eternal worship. Now and into eternity. And lastly, we remember, we hold tightly to the unstoppable power of the gospel. Read with me verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on things and things on earth. So, so what's God's plan for this mysterious thing that he unveiled in Christ? What's God's plan for his new covenant people? What's God's plan for the church of Jesus Christ? In the fullness of time, God's plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, this is how I see this passage, over the long course of world history, God is going to bring everything in heaven and in earth under the sovereign rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus knew that, and that's why he was able to say with confidence, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will net not ever prevail against it. Now remember this, gates aren't an offensive weapon. Nobody builds a gate to go to war. Gates are, gates are used to defend, to hold back. And what Jesus is saying is, I will build my church, and there's nothing on this planet that can stop the progress of the gospel. There's nothing on this planet that can stop me changing hearts and lives as people preach and proclaim the gospel. That's why Paul was able to say in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is reigning today. He is on the throne and he is building his church. And his plan is to unite everything in heaven and earth under his sovereign rule. So the question is, how's he going to do this? How does it happen? How does he accomplish it? To answer the question, one needs only ask the question, what is it that unites people? What is it that brings people together like nothing else? And the answer is the gospel. What was it in the first century that brought Jew and Gentile together? It was the gospel. What is it in Revelation that brings people from every tribe and language and people and nation together around the throne of the Lamb? What does that? It's the gospel. Nothing does that but the gospel. The United Nations can't do it. The hearts of evil men and women can't accomplish it. The only thing that makes it happen is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel destroys bigotry. The gospel destroys racism. It brings enemies together. It allows forgiveness to flow in a marriage that's been shattered. It can unite people who would naturally be at enmity with one another. It transforms people from the heart to love one another who would naturally not. The only thing that brings unity to our world is the gospel. And that's why it's so critical that we hang on to it, that we don't lose it. That's why it's so critical that we preach it and we plead with people, be reconciled to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Only the gospel changes and grows churches because it's an unstoppable power. There's nothing that can stop the gospel. Why do churches die? Why are the mainline churches dead? Yeah, they still twitch because they've got monies that were given centuries ago, but there's no life. The spirit is long gone. What makes churches live? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Slick advertising, great music, wonderful kids' programs, a a hip pastor, young pastor. (laughs) That isn't the answer. That may be good things, but if we lose the gospel, we're done. The thing that causes us and will cause us to continue to grow and impact the Niagara region is if we hold tightly to the gospel and refuse to let it go. We stand up for the virgin birth and the incarnation when people laugh at us. We speak about the bloody, brutal, propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus when people tell us that God is too loving to allow that to happen. We preach only Jesus and Jesus only. And we don't stop preaching. We don't ever quit preaching the gospel, the old, old story of God's grace. Let it ring from your heart, let it ring from your home, and let it ring from this church as long as God gives you breath. And God will use us to transform this community for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that the gospel changes everything. That you have changed us. That you have changed our world. That today, hundreds of millions of people know you as Lord and Savior. And that you are building your church today through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray for our church. I pray that the gospel would always be central. The gospel would always be foundational, that we would never equivocate, never prevaricate, never lose it, never quit preaching the gospel. So, Father, drill it deeply into our souls and let our response as we think about the virgin birth, as we think about the suffering of Jesus, as we think about the gospel of Christ and its power and what it is that you're accomplishing in our world. Lord, let us us respond with worship and thanksgiving, and joy, and gladness. And go and tell the good news. Go and share the message, and, and, and encourage people, beg people to come and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in his name. Amen.